Well, Matt, thank you and worship team. And uh, Jeff, the uh, announcement police are everywhere. And so if Jeff Cobb is missing, goes missing the next few weeks. Uh, just know why. Our scripture this morning is First Kings chapter 19, and we're actually going to we're going to read it in three acts. So we'll have the passage before us uh, during the the entire service. Uh, in our six weeks together, we are working from a metaphor which says life is a journey. It has a beginning at birth. It has an ending. And there are many challenges and changes along the way. The life as a Christ follower is also a journey. It has a beginning. It's our rebirth. When we finally surrender to the resolute love of God and we embrace the Savior. And it has a destination. Uh, there's an immediate destination, this side of heaven, in which God is at work to form our character after the character of Christ. And then we meet our eternal destination and we enter the life that is really life. But in between, there are changes and challenges along the way. The seas of circumstance shift and challenge us in so many ways. Now, every journey is unique. But there are commonalities to every journey also. And I suspect one of them is that for all of us, though we experience it differently, there are times when the journey becomes too much. Even in the lives of spiritual superheroes like Elijah, who will be the focus of our time together in the word today. Now, how great was Elijah? Well, in the New Testament, we have recorded for us an event where Jesus takes his inner circle of disciples up to the peak of a 9,000 foot mountain, Mount Herbert. And there before their very eyes, he is transfigured and becomes gloriously radiant. And then he is seen conversing with two figures from the Old Testament who attest to his Messiahship. And those two persons are Moses and Elijah. So you can see Moses and Elijah are among the greatest of the great in Hebrew scriptures. Both of them experienced times in their lives when the journey was too much. And in the case of Elijah, it didn't happen during a period of failure. It actually happened during a period of success. And so we're going to examine the experience of Elijah on the worst day of his life, which actually mutated into the worst season of his life. And we're going to do so in three acts to see how God works in a life when the journey becomes too much. Act one might be called face down in the desert. And the story picks up with verses one through eight of first Kings 19. Now, at this point. If we were to read chapters 17 and 18, Elijah is on an incredible winning streak. He is, he is experiencing unparalleled success in very dark times. He is confronting evil. 
He is successfully predicting a drought. He is fed by the ravens during the drought. He spares the life of a widow and heals her son. And then comes the most spectacular moment of all. He stands on Mount Carmel and he faces down 450 false prophets of an idol named Baal. Now, how does Baal appear in the northern kingdom of Israel, which supposedly worships the one true God? Well, Ahab, unfortunately, met the wrong kind of woman, and he marries Jezebel, who is a priestess of this false god. Now, now Baal is the god of the storm. His weapons are lightning and thunder, and his visual representation is that of a bull. So Elijah charges in and he confronts this false god on his very own terms. And so he says to the 450 prophets, let's quit wavering as to who really is God. Let's find out today who is God in Israel. So you get a bull and I'll get a bull and we'll slaughter it and lay it on the altar and we'll see whose God rains down fire and consumes our sacrifice. You go first. And so the 450 prophets do everything they can to cry out to their false god and nothing happens. And in the midst of it, Elijah is doing a little bit of trash talking, if you read those chapters. <laughs> and then he goes into action and God shows up in tremendous power. And it all ends with the, the bull being consumed and Elijah doing an end zone celebration that results in the death of the 450 false prophets. And just to top it all off, if you read first Kings chapter 17, Elijah then outruns the chariot of his arch enemy, Ahab, and wins the Jezreel marathon in record time. And he goes to bed a spiritual superhero. What a high. And then he wakes up to the ultimate blue Monday. Verses 1 through 8. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of theirs. Elijah was afraid ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights till he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, here's Elijah after this incredible winning streak. Faces down 
450 false prophets. And then he gets a threatening email from one tough woman. And she says, all that stuff you did to my prophets. 24 hours from now, it will have been done to you. And Elijah knows that Jezebel has a track record of making good on her threats. But you would think after the spiritual successes that he has experienced, that he could endure this. But what does he do? His spirit plummets and he hightails it out of Dodge or Jezreel. And he runs and doesn't stop running till about 80 to 100 miles south when he arrives at Beersheba, the southernmost city in the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of the Hebrew people. Whereas Jezreel was in the northern kingdom, which is Israel, where Jezebel had jurisdiction. And if he hasn't run far enough, he leaves his servant in Beersheba and he goes another day's journey out into the desert. Just a short while before, he had faced down 450 false prophets. And now he is faced down in the dirt in the desert. And at this point, Elijah prays. Did you catch his prayer? God, I've had enough. My prayer is that I might die. He asked the Lord to let him die. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? I have once. And I'm sure Elijah was grateful and I certainly was grateful that God does not always answer our prayers in the ways we ask them. Because you see, often, among other issues, our perspectives are seriously skewed. But it is, to me, encouraging to know that we can cry out to God right where we are and be honest with him in the rawness of our emotions and our circumstances. You know, the Psalms teach us that the Psalms are the great worship book of the Bible and a great primer for prayer. And so many of the Psalms are beautiful and majestic. And so many of our worship songs are written from the Psalms. But then you hit a stretch. Where it's downright uncomfortable. And we learn once again that prayer is a real conversation. Sometimes a raw, real conversation with a merciful and faithful God. So God meets us in our brokenness. He allows us to cry out to him. And then he gives us what we need. And what do we need when we're face down in the dirt? Well, we need rest and restoration. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. What we need sometimes when the journey becomes too much is rest and restoration. Elijah had been running and running and running and his tank was empty and his soul was dry. For all of us, there come times in our lives when we run nose first 
into the slam door of our own limitations. And as much as that hurts, that is a necessary part of the journey. The sooner we learn that God is God and we are not, the sooner God can go to work at a deeper level of our lives. Elijah had been all about hurry, and now he was face down in the dirt. You know, we live in a marginalist culture. Our culture is a lot like that character in Alice in Wonderland who's running to and fro and says to Alice, you know, around here, you've got to run as fast as you can just to keep from going backwards. And if you want to get ahead, you've got to run twice as fast as that. And we are bombarded by stimuli and, and information and we are consumed with multitasking. And for many of us, we are headed for the dirt. And it might be instructive to look at the life of Jesus. Jesus, who is God, a very God, the eternal one. Who willingly laid aside his perks and privileges as God. Took upon himself real human flesh and lived the most incredibly impactful life. Jesus knew all about noise, hurry and crowds and noise, hurry and crowds, as Richard Foster says, are the mortal enemies of a healthy soul. And the scriptures often record that as Jesus is in the midst of this fruitful, productive day. Doing really good and important stuff, he would feel the power going out of him and he would tell the disciples, that's enough. Let's draw aside and let's be alone for rest, reflection and restoration. Let's be alone with the Father. In fact, the book of Mark, which is the action book of the New Testament, it's straightway Jesus did this, straightway Jesus did that. Constantly on the move. In the first nine chapters of the Gospel of Mark, there are a dozen references to times when Jesus simply called a time out and he drew aside to be alone. For two purposes, for rest and restoration, and then regularly to be alone with the Father, to cultivate a transforming friendship with Him. Now, we can learn from the practices of Jesus, or we can learn from the practices of Elijah. We can engage in mid-flight refueling. What was the old tanker? Now, Marilyn and I got to climb into it one time, the KC-47, 147, KC-something. I never thought I'd forget the number because we got to climb into the tail of a KC-147 tanker, which is that cargo plane which they used to, to use to refuel jets in mid-flight. And we went down into the tail one at a time. And you get down into this seat and you're strapped in and there are these two long uh, prods and, and you're supposed to line them up with a gas tank of one of those billion-dollar jets without poking a hole in it. And I found out that requires some heavy-duty training. But we all need to learn the lesson of mid-flight refueling, where on regular bases we draw aside for rest and restoration and to be alone with the Father in the Scriptures, entering into a transforming conversation with Him. Because you cannot drive on an empty tank. 
You cannot pour from an empty container. We need to learn the life giving rhythms of journey inward into rest and restoration and into a transforming friendship with God and then journey outward when we join Jesus in his activity in the traffic patterns of our lives. God draws near to us when the journey becomes too much and he gives us rest and restoration. He gives us sleep. He gives us food. He gives us more sleep. And quietly in ways that we probably don't even understand, he is preparing us for the next stage of the journey. Acts, Act 2. Act 1 is face down in the desert. Act 2 might be called from the desert to the mountain, hearing God in the sounds of silence. And we pick up with verse 9. My, uh, Elijah got up and traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. Notice how he put that. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. Broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me, too. The Lord said, go out on the mountain. In the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And the wind was there was a, an earthquake after the wind. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. A thin silence almost in the Hebrew. And when Elijah heard it. He pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left and now they're going to kill me, too. And the Lord said to him, go back. The way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, there are kings to anoint. There is evil to confront. And there is a young man for you to mentor. By the way, Elijah, I reserve 7000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Elijah is already. Run a hundred miles out into the desert in his desperation. And God gives him rest and refreshment. And then Elijah has 250 miles to go deeper into the desert, into a rugged mountainous region where he finally comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. And you remember Mount Sinai was precious to Israel. It was the place where Moses met God face to face. And God gave the Ten Commandments and established his covenant with his people. 
Elijah is a desperate man and he stumbles on this long journey to get back to his spiritual roots. To be at the place where his people had known the presence of God. John R.W. Stott says there are three great quests of humankind. And one of those is the quest for transcendence. To hunger to know that there is someone who is greater than us, who rises above our present problems and transcends our limitations. You see, no matter how much we struggle to be the gods of our own lives. We know that self is a false savior. And self is limited and we need the great and awesome God we sang about a moment ago. I think that's one reason people seek sacred places in times of crisis. 9-11. People went looking for God, often in very convoluted ways, but they showed up at church buildings. They did candlelight vigils and cul-de-sacs and before governor buildings. They were looking beyond themselves for the transcendent. I mean, self, with all its limitations, cannot rescue self. And Elijah goes looking for God. Now, this is a critical point in Elijah's life. Back at Mount Carmel, he had been listening to the voice of God. But that was 350 miles ago, for heaven's sakes. And for 350 miles and a long period of time, he has been listening to other voices. The voices of fear, futility, frustration, failure, fatigue. Finally, he prays and his prayers are all askew. And he goes to the mountain. By the way, men... Notice the first place that Elijah goes. Where does he go? He goes into a cave and spends the night. From personal experience, I know that's what us guys tend to do. He goes up and what do we do? We go into a cave and we separate ourselves from all the resources God has given us. Family, friends, God himself. Usually to our great detriment. I know that's been true in my life. And so God calls out to Elijah. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I wish we had this on on a a DVD. Because I I would be interested in what syllable God places the emphasis in this question. Does he say, what are you doing here, Elijah? Or is he saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah. No matter to Elijah, he just overlooks the question and it's a chance for him to to um, launch into self-righteousness and self-justification. And he points out that all the others would be Christians have forsaken God. He's the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. He complains. Here I am on the mountain where you gave the commandments and everybody else has forsaken you. They've broken them. The covenant is no good in their eyes. I'm the only one left. Well, God will show up in the midst of our self-pity. But he's got a greater end in mind. And now we come to the part, the good part, where we understand that when the journey becomes too much, the trip is not over. In fact, if we will just be still. Listen 
Look up. We just might enter the most fruitful times of our lives. I love that statement by Henry Blackaby in his wonderful course, Experiencing God. You never really know the truth of your situation until you've heard from God. So are you looking for God in the middle of your circumstances? Elijah is about to hear from God. And so the Lord says, go out from the cave. I'm about to pass you by, which is biblical language to say God is saying, I'm about to show up. In all of the splendor of my character. Now, I'm not sure if Elijah goes out at that point because you notice he's in the cave after God speaks. So he either never went out or when the laser show began, he ran back in. I'm not sure which. But there is lightning. There is thunder. There is an earthquake. There is a fire. There is all this mighty rushing wind. And what does the scripture say? God isn't in any of it. And then there is the gentle whisper. And God shows up in the silence. And most of us would really like God to show up in the spectacular. It's rather disappointing often that God didn't show up in the laser display and the fireworks. Why do you suppose that is? I've got a couple of ideas. Number one, I think uh, it's because God wants us to worship him and not an experience. Sometime back, we looked at Moses' call before the burning bush. And it's just interesting to me that that's the only time God used a burning bush. He shows up in various ways. And when it's spectacular, there's usually a very daunting assignment for the one who sees the spectacular. But it would have been our nature to start looking for God in a burning bush. God wants us to worship him, not an experience. Hence. A quiet whisper. Secondly, if God usually speaks in a gentle whisper, that means we really have to listen. We have to shift our full focus upon God. Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. Interesting because Psalm 46 is one of those more spectacular scriptures in the displays of God's power. But when it comes to knowing God is present, we have to get quiet and still. We have to listen. Give him our full focus. Or as uh, the message translates that, step out of the traffic and take a long, loving look at your God. That's a biblical principle is when we lift our focus looking for God and we get still before him, we are more likely to hear him. And thirdly, God speaks in the context of a relationship. And see, we must cultivate this transforming friendship with Jesus in his word, in worship. And in that context, we come to hear and recognize his voice. Jesus says in John 20, 10, 27, my sheep listen for my voice and I know them and they follow me. And uh, we mentioned when we looked at the 23rd Psalm that William Barclay makes the contrast between British shepherds 
and uh, the shepherds of Israel. British shepherds tend to raise sheep for food. Hence, a very short lived relationship. The shepherds of Israel raised sheep for wool. And there was a long nurturing relationship where the shepherd guided the sheep, called out to them with his voice because the sheep tended to go astray. And the sheep learned that when they listened to his voice, goodness and mercy would follow them all the days of their lives. And so as we cultivate that transforming friendship, we learn to hear the unique character, flavor and timber of the father's voice. God shows up. He speaks into our lives, draws us into relationship with him. And now we're ready for the final act of how God works when the journey becomes too much. Act one was face down in the desert. Act two was from the desert to the mountain, hearing God in the sounds of silence. Act three, if we all knew who Tex Ritter was and used to sing that old cowboy song back in the saddle again, uh, it's back into the arena where we join God in his redemptive activity in the relational traffic patterns of our lives. And now I know which syllable got the emphasis in God's question. He's saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? I had you on assignment 370 miles to the north. And Elijah shows up here beaten and disappointed and looking for God. And God deals with us so gently and redemptively in those times. But then what does he do? He doesn't allow us just to stay up there in the mountain. He turns to Elijah and he slaps him up. Well, he pats him on the shoulder <laughs> and tells him to get back out there in the game. He says, you've got more kings to anoint. You've got more evil to confront, more battles to be won. And you've got a young man that you are going to mentor. And by the way, Elijah, you've been whining about being the only one. There are 7,000. And the way they counted in those days, that was probably 7,000 men plus faithful women and children who are my faithful followers. Have you ever noticed that God always has his people? Even in the darkest cultures that are in decline and decay, decay, God has his people and the battle belongs to him. And so Elijah reengages in the arena in the power of God, having been restored and renewed. And the most important thing he does is he goes up to Elisha, throws his cloak around him, which means he is anointing him for his task, gives him a double portion of his spirit. He will do even greater works than Elijah did. Are you learning the lesson of passing the baton in full stride? The other day, Marilyn and I went to a track meet uh, involving one of our granddaughters. We have two very uh, fleet grandchildren, and they're both girls. 
and they both both do very well in track. And so we went to Bryn's track meet. And first of all, she was on the high jump. And then her second uh, big event was to run in the four by 200 relay. And relay races to me are the most exciting of all track events. Because you have this team of four, they each run an equal distance, and they have to pass the baton while in full stride. And so the winning team is not always the fastest team, but it's the team who is fast, but also successfully passes the baton while in full stride. Jesus did this continually. That was his whole approach with the disciples. He was in the game and he was passing the baton. You know, moving back to the Northwest, I'm experiencing the joy of reconnecting with people in whose lives I made some kind of investment and am getting to watch them go on and grow on in Christ. And there is really nothing like that. I have a few relationships in which it is very formal. There's a prescribed course of study and we are in a mentoring discipleship kind of relationship. But most of my relationships are very informal, but they are still intentional. And there are three great gifts you as a follower of Jesus can give to someone else. You can give them the gift of your time. Time is the most precious of all commodities. And you validate and value someone when you give them some of your time. Secondly, you give them the gift of listening. Who listens to anybody nowadays? We're always transmitting. Very seldom are we receiving. Listen like a vacuum cleaner and you can mentor people to the glory of God while you're continuing to be in the game. Hear their story. And thirdly, give them the gift of encouragement. Jesus was always giving somebody a reputation to live up to. And that's our privilege also. We receive that gift from him. And over time, as you continue to be an encourager, you have an opportunity to be an exhorter where you can spur somebody on to love and good deeds. But be intentional. Invest in someone and while you are mentoring them, model the life of living out of the overflow of a transforming friendship with Jesus. And how do we respond to how God has spoken to us in worship and in the word today? Well, there's probably no better model than Elisha. And that brings us to the last three verses of this passage. So Elijah went from there. And found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen. And he himself was driving the twelfth pair. In other words, he was the son of a wealthy farmer. And Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen, ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come back to you. And Elijah says, go back. What have I done to you? And so Elisha left him, went back. He took his yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people. And they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah and become his attendant. What was Elisha doing there? Basically, he was burning the right bridges. 
His life vocation, his future was wrapped up in being a gentleman farmer. And now he receives the call from God to follow him fully and to be mentored by Elijah. And so he burns the plowing equipment. He cooks the meat, of the, the kills the oxen, cooks the meat, feeds the community. What is he doing? He is saying, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Discipleship to Jesus is burning the right bridges. Now, we have a younger daughter named Beth who, while she was uh, in college in a life skills course, professor asked all the students, share some of those little platitudes and saying that your parents are always telling you. And Beth shot up her hand first, which was no surprise. And she said, my parents are always telling me, don't burn your bridges. Now, there's a reason we've always told Beth that our two older children always when they're in a relationally challenging situation, they think before they speak. They carefully measure their response and then they speak. Our two younger children, however, never have known a confrontation that they didn't relish. For some reason they have extra sass and brass. I don't know which family they got that side of the family they got that from. And we have had to tell them both. Don't burn your bridges. But there are the right bridges to burn. Those things in your life, even good things, that are competing loyalties to your loyalty to Christ. God substitutes, if you will. Those are the things we must choose to turn from as we turn to follow Christ. So this morning, will you? That's for Scott. And this is for you. What will you do with how God is speaking to you in worship today? Well, first of all, will you seek God right in the middle of your current circumstances? You wonder if he's anywhere. But let me assure you, he is. You never know the truth of your circumstances until you've heard from God. And if you will get still and seek him, he will show up. Secondly, accept the challenge to pass the baton. In full stride. Don't be someone who is a Christ follower who someday heads for the bench, sits down and then says, oh, by the way, you need to take my place. I'm out of the game. First of all, we're never out of the game. Retirement is not in the Bible. We may, you know, retire from a certain assignment, a vocational assignment, but we are still fully employed as as a fruitful follower of Jesus. But in the process, the greatest thing we can do is Invest in others, that they may go far beyond us as we pass the baton while still in the game. And thirdly, will you burn your bridges and follow Christ? Remembering this, the life that is life indeed is life in Christ. And you will never go wrong if you choose Holy to follow Jesus. May we bow together for a moment of prayer. We have those connection cards and they're an opportunity for your share prayer requests, ask for information. And the third thing you can do is jot down how you are responding to what God is saying to you through worship and the word.
today. You might write down, I have decided to follow Jesus. You might write down, no turning back. You might write down, I I would like to speak with someone about following Jesus. But use this time wisely and well. I'm going to pray. Following that, our um, ushers are going to take the offering. We worship God through the offering. That's a time you also can drop those connection cards in the offering bag, including your commitment to follow Christ today. Father, may we be still and may we listen. As you speak into our lives, words that we need to hear. And may we respond with a resounding yes to whatever it is you ask us to do. For great indeed are you, and rich indeed is your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.